Thank you for listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church. We exist to seek the glory of God for the good of Brookhaven. We do this through worship that is reformed, discipleship that's relational, and mission that's neighborly. If you want to know more about Christianity or our church home, please visit our website, faithbrookhaven.org. Now for today's podcast. If you have a Bible, I welcome you to take it and turn to the letter of Second Peter. We're in chapter 3, and we'll read verses 10 through 18. If you don't have that Scripture or you can't find it, that's okay. We have it in our bulletin, and you're welcome to follow along in this section. These are Peter's last words, literally, to the church. Last words, you know, have a ring of significance to them. I was reading this week that in her 2014 memoir, the fiancé of Elvis Presley uh, in 1978, Ginger Alden, revealed that Elvis's last words in a restless night were, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Not profound, <laughs> but very real. He didn't know Those were going to be his last words. The letter this morning is significant because Peter does know that these will be his last words. He knows he's been sentenced to death. Why? Because he preferred Christ over Caesar. That was treason. And in his last letters, he expresses a great love and concern for the people of God who have looked to him as one of Christ's messengers. So let's read Peter's last words. And we're kind of picking up mid-thought. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, there are some things in his letters that are just hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, in these few moments, would you teach us? Would you help us? 
Lord, will you save us from Mark Twain's quip about the Scriptures when he said these are just words, mere words. Lord, I regret to say that he has discovered otherwise. We pray now rather than later we, we would know that. But Lord, that requires your help. Otherwise, they would be just words. So teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's Peter's point. What will happen, what will happen changes what is happening. What will happen changes what is happening. The Scriptures actually give us a couple of images to latch onto that lets us know something about that. Childbirth and weddings. Those are the ways Scriptures depict kind of the story of God's Gospel. Think about a birth, an announcement, you are pregnant. Well, what happens then? What do you wait for? What do you anticipate? How do you plan? What changes? Or a wedding, you're engaged, wonderful. What now? What does it point toward? What's the purpose of the engagement? That's kind of a picture. Because if you know what's coming, the future, boy, it changes the present and everything about it. Well, let's just look at Peter. What does he say will happen? If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you probably would think this very strange. And it is. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around. But the Gospels speak over 300 times about what Peter describes here. So it's something that's not on the, the, the boundaries of Christianity. It's near the heart, and it's something we struggle with. Well, what will happen? Well, here's what he's talking about. When Jesus rose from the dead, a clock started. Time actually, and this is hard to grasp, but the way the Scriptures present it is at the resurrection, time actually began. But it is also the ending of something else. And so the Scriptures present that the resurrection is not something to be confined to an annual holiday that we merely dress up and eat good food, though that's good. The resurrection is actually a process that has begun and it has an end game. It's going somewhere. It's taking God's people somewhere. And he describes that. The end game is what he calls the day of the Lord. He says that more than once. The day of the Lord. What's that? Well, the day of the Lord is all throughout Scripture. And if I can kind of use images you might get, the way Peter describes the day of the Lord is it's, it's like a flash mob and it's like a reveal party. You know, flash mob was popular a few years ago. You'd see videos of people sitting in a food court in a mall, and they're just eating and going about their business. And then out of nowhere, people just stood up and began singing. And so it was a surprise. They didn't know it was going to happen. So it's all of a sudden a flash, and something happens. That's the way he describes the day of the Lord in a moment. Maybe by the time I finish this sentence, maybe the end of this next week, maybe in 10,000 millennia, 
however God deems fit. But that's it. It's something he says, it's coming like a thief. That's language Jesus used. Pop, flash mob. But it's also a reveal party, you know, like families do now when they find out they're pregnant and they invite all the family and friends over and they, you know, have a balloon full of either blue powder or pink powder and they pop it and the secret is out. It's revealed, right? That's this too. Alarming words in verse 10. He says, all the things done on earth will be exposed. We'll be caught. All of the secrets that we've held and hidden will be out in the open. That frightens me because I grew up being exposed often. I loved the rock group Kiss. Sorry. And they had a couple of just the greatest live albums ever. So in my room with a tennis racket and a golf club fitted as a microphone, man, I would play away with my imagination. And inevitably, every time, every time, because the music was so loud, I couldn't hear that someone was standing there at the door. (laughs) Mom, dad, or worse, brother. And in that moment, there's this just shudder, this thought. They know what I do in my room. I'm exposed. That's how Peter describes this day of the Lord. It's a flash mob and a reveal party all rolled into one. But that's not its purpose. It's important to see the day of the Lord has a purpose. And so he goes on and he describes it. You know, we mentioned a moment ago the idea of we found out we're pregnant. That's the gospel. And we found out we're engaged. That's the gospel. That's Jesus coming. But it has an end game. The day of the Lord is the birthday party. The day of the Lord is the wedding. So the day of the Lord, though it has this alarming note to it, is something to be looked forward to and anticipated and even pursued because it's when all that you've anticipated finally comes true, as C.S. Lewis says. The day of the Lord is something new. Verse 13, according to His promise, we're waiting for, we're expectantly looking for, this is what's going to happen, new heavens and new earth. New heavens and a new earth. There's a lot of language in this passage about burning and melting, and dissolving. And I think because of our popular, kind of popular Christianity, we've taken that to mean, you know, the Lord is going to blow up the world. And everything's going to be gone. And He's going to start over. The Bible, though, always uses fire and melting and dissolving in, in the sense of purification. Like you take a precious metal and you expose it to fire and it melts, but what's left is the good stuff and what disappears is, well, the bad stuff. They call dross. The things that taint it. That's what's being spoken of here. And when he speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, he uses a word that's very specific. Most often the word new is something we're familiar with, neo which means altogether new. Altogether new. Something completely different. But the word he uses is a different word. Kynos. It means renewed. 
It's something that refers to a newness of quality. That the thing itself remains, but it's been made better, made whole. So if I can say it crassly, the Bible teaches us that you right now are sitting where heaven will be. And it will be as physical and as tangible and as enjoyable as anything you can enjoy now, only more. The, the idea of a kind of spirit existence refers to maybe heaven now, but not as heaven will be. And that matters. Because it says God doesn't lose what He created. And so, many of us think of heaven as being kind of a boring existence. And many people would say, I don't want to go to heaven Floating on clouds, playing harps, singing all day, yawn. What about gardening? What about eating pomegranates? What about singing with friends? What about, and I pray, playing golf? That's the way the Scriptures describe it. Only it's a place beautifully where righteousness dwells. We can't comprehend that. We only know a world where there's hurt and sin and pain and brokenness. But it won't be there. And everything will be most enjoyable, most beautiful, most glorious. And we have that to look forward to. That's what he means. What will happen? New heavens and new earth. Judgment? Definitely. Be warned. Goodness revealed, be glad. Okay, so what? That's wonderful, that's beautiful, that's a way of seeing how the world ends, that's something maybe unique to Christians. Um, who cares? Well, he goes on and he says that. And he's, of course, talking to Christians who would ask that question. Who cares? Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved, here's the question that Peter's driving at. Because of that, what sort of people ought you to be. So now that you know what will be, what about now? How does it affect now? Now that you know that time is pregnant and we'll be having a child, how does it change the parents? And Now that you know that time has been engaged and there's a wedding on the way, how, how will it affect the in-between? That's what he's going at here. Well, if I can quote Andy Dufresne, the great theologian from Shawshank Redemption, here's kind of a summary of what Peter's getting at. Either get busy living or get busy dying. One is living and emerging, and one is dying and fading away. And that's the way the Scriptures describe the human experience in God's hand. Well, let's just kind of flesh that out for a moment because it'll help us understand maybe what living looks like by describing what dying looks like. You see, what Peter is presenting to the world is one of the three of the greatest things in, in human experience. Like the most important things in life, which I, if you asked me before I study this, I'd say, okay, education, money, family even, having you know, a healthy body. Those are the most important things in life. But the Bible insists it's faith, hope, and love. That's the most important things. And here, he's really raising all of them out, but the chief one is hope. And hope looks to what is going to be. 
uh, not as a hollow speculation, but Lord, this is what's going to happen. I'm investing in that. I'm looking toward that. Well, a life without hope is the one that's busy dying. A life without hope continues to ignore the impending realities that there is a God and we are accountable. The dying life is that which continues to try to outrun God. You can't. <laughs> Just can't. Now, the way that's worked out in history, and it's nothing new to us. It's not unique to our generation. It's always been three responses to that reality. Distraction, denial, despair. Distraction. The ancients called it Epicureanism. We know it now as hedonism. It's the idea that since there's nothing more after this life, live it up. To quote Queen, I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. It is the mentality that I have nothing to look forward to except getting drunk this weekend. There's nothing more important than finally getting to Papa's Buffet. That's what I'm investing in. I can't wait to escape the obligations of the work week. That's hedonism. Distract, distract, distract. Another one is what the ancients called Stoicism. They would have dealt with this back in Peter's day. It's a great philosophy. It said because there's really nothing else, you do have a responsibility to kind of tighten your lips, grit your teeth, and make it through this world. The response to that, of course, becomes a world of apathy. You don't really care what's going on around you. Why, why worry? I hear that all the time in my experience. The, the, the doxology of that worldview is... The following quote, it is what it is. That's stoicism. I've heard Christians actually refer to the world with all of its needs and pains and hurts with the following, why bother? It's all going to burn up anyway. But not burned up to disappear. Burned up to reveal how you invested in it. That's the counter to that. More prominent now is the third way. You distract, you can deny, that's what the apathy does, and then despair. And every age has its version, but there's a special twist now. And those who study these things will tell you there's a uniqueness to our age that has not existed in prior centuries, and it's that we have collectively settled as a civilization. There is nothing more. And because of that, people, people live their lives both distracted and denying, yet there is underneath all of that the opposite of hope, which is despair. Despair. Nothing good will come of my life. Often we address the problems of our society. Uh, we we, we kind of hit the symptoms, but not the cause. Like, for instance, we ask the question, yeah, why are inner cities so violent and full of so much crime? And if I'm coming more from a liberal angle, I'll say something, you know, they're just better schools, more education. And a more conservative approach to that would be, well, the family breakdown. We could just get dads back in the home. You know what? Both of those are true. 
But there's something underneath that. The why to those, it's despair. I have absolutely nothing to look forward to. Why bother? Want to know why dads show up one day and say, I'm leaving my family? Despair. Why wives medicate themselves in secret because of boredom, despair. We ask ourselves why hatred and anger are more valuable and virtuous than forgiveness and patience, at least now, despair. There's nothing coming. Why our children and, quite frankly, ourselves spend hours upon hours zoned out before screens. Despair. That's what it looks like getting busy dying. It is the resignation that none of this will happen. It is the resignation that my life really is insignificant. I am but a collection, as Bertrand Russell said, a collocation of carbon. That is not the biblical answer. So Peter encourages us to get busy living. Verse 12, what does that look like? Look at these words. One is waiting. But waiting is not here this kind of passive, you know, let, let go and let God. The, the word is actually to look ahead toward. To actually, the, the prefix of it is pro. You know what that means. You're, you're looking toward something actively. There is a pro to life. Pro looking to life. And then look at the next one. I, don't, I can't even explain this, so don't ask me to. But it says, and hastening the coming of the day of God. Like there is apparently a way that God counts our participation in upholding righteousness and truth and celebrating the gospel that actually brings about His day. A contribution to that. That's, that's what living seems to look like. So take that idea there of birth and marriage, right? A couple hears that they're going to have a baby. What happens in the next few months? Well, they don't just stop living, do they? In fact, everything changes. Everything changes for the good. I mean, your friends start to change. You know, there's, you just can't hang with a baby. You just can't do what you did. Habits begin to change. You know, dad has to stop smoking because there's a baby in the house. Leanne and I had to get rid of a cat because the cat was a little aggressive. We didn't want that thing getting in our baby's crib. So who goes, the baby or the cat? The cat, every time, booted, without mercy. And without regret. But you think about birth and marriage too. Like your view of money changes. Like wastefulness suddenly becomes purposeful. We've got to have this. For this. We're investing in this baby. We haven't even met it yet. But we're investing in that baby. Time. Selflessness. Suddenly. And it takes the man a while because he's not carrying that baby to understand, okay, it really isn't about me, is it? But that's what we meet in birth and marriage. And, and the encouragement there is that everything that a believer does in Christ matters. 
Your work, no matter what you do in Christ, has eternal significance. The goodness bestowed through that labor will shine forth in eternity. It'll be revealed and exposed. Um, Our talents, every prayer uttered that you never heard an answer to, you'll finally go, oh, I get it now. Everything's moving toward that way. Now, finally, quickly, that's what? What'll happen? The day of the Lord. And it's good. It's sobering, but it's good. So what? Well, because of that, I'm either moving in one of two trajectories. I'm either dissolving into nothingness, or I'm becoming more weighty toward glory. I'm either moving against God's program, or I'm moving into God's program. One lives, one dies. One solidifies and one fades. That's what I'm to do. Well, how? How do I do it right now? What am I supposed to do? Give me the thing. Well, look, look at verses 17 and 18. Because that's where he sums all of this up. Verse 17. He tells us, here's what you got to do. you got to be vigilant. you got to be on the lookout. you got to be on guard. You're still susceptible to something. He says this, Beloved, and don't miss that term, Beloved. Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Actually, teeter-totter and slip. He's writing to believers, by the way, to Christians. But he notes that within that church are these kind of loud unbelievers. Like they joined the church, but they haven't joined Christ. And what they do, he says, is they, they create a temptation to kind of follow after them because they're louder. They're loud. And that seems more heroic to follow. So they're loud. Temptation to follow, verse 16. He also says that you're going to be tempted with them to twist the Scripture. That's a great word, twist. You've heard the old word, iniquity. That's what it means. It's to take something and kind of deform it. What we do with the Word is there's a temptation. You come to even things like the day of the Lord and say, you know what, my God doesn't do that. That's a twisting. My God would not ever think that. Twisting. So we're either adding to or we're taking away from God's Word rather than, of course, submitting to it. That's a temptation. Be vigilant against that. And probably the most lethal is, well, one that's understood underneath the word vigilant, if you'll bear with me a moment. How does a person suddenly lose their stability as believers and drift away? By doing nothing. Years ago, Joe Novenson stood here and he just had these beautiful illustrations. He says... How does a knife get dull? You don't use it. You just leave it in the drawer. And then he asks, how does a boat drift in the waters? You just don't touch it. You just let it go. 
And then cement. How does, how does cement harden? You stop stirring it. It'll harden. Peter wants us to know that there is an activity in vigilance. And the positive of that is verse 18. A word that you've probably heard. But there's a contrast to that. Be vigilant, but be diligent. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's the task. There's the hope. There's the now. There's the preparation for the wedding. There's the, there's the investing in the cake and the reception and the flowers. There's the busyness of getting the wedding dress together. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the nesting of getting rid of junk and opening up space for a crib. Painting the room anew. Cleaning it from top to bottom like you never had. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Getting ready in a sense. The word grow should encourage you. It tells us and reminds us in that one word that the gospel is not, hey, I can't wait till you get your life together. Come to get your life together. The word grow reminds us that we can't get our lives together. And that it requires the work of another. And it's something to which you grow into. It's something that is not accomplished in one fell swoop. It is something that He grows. He blossoms. What is it He grows? Well, grace and knowledge. There are three words in this, and you can, you can kind of deal this out later, that just describe grace to a T. Do you want to know what you tell yourself every day? Like, how do I nourish this? How do I till the soil of my heart? How do I keep my cement still loose and my knife sharp? Just look at the words in verse 18 he uses of Jesus. Christ, Savior, Lord. There's grace. The word Christ reminds you that God has made you part of His people. This is the Messiah. This is the appointed. This is the fulfillment of the promises. Savior is what He did. Savior, not helper. I needed saving. How's it going to affect the way I view other people? How's it going to affect the way I view myself? I've been saved, rescued. Pride dies. Lord, He doesn't just let us go and set us out. He's now present. He's our protector. He's our help. That's the Lord. He's our Lord over us. There, there it is. That's what you nourish. And he throws the word knowledge in there, and I know I'm sounding like a dictionary, but I always am tempted to say, you know, knowledge in Scripture means intimacy. Doesn't mean just Bible study and getting... Okay, think about this for a moment. That's true. But intimacy and information travel together, don't they? Think about the married metaphor. Imagine a couple has their wedding day, and then they go live in separate houses. And like, well, let's just be honest, like most American Christians, the typical American Christian, imagine a couple that sees each other about once a month. Or in some cases, twice a year. Imagine that they never talk. They never talk. 
Imagine that they don't know anything about one another's history or family, desires or dreams. That's what he's talking about. Knowledge of Jesus requires getting to know Him. And that blossoms into this beautiful growth in grace. Now, here's the good word for you. These words were written by the chief stumbler. They were penned by Scripture's greatest stumbler. In fact, the word Peter uses is one he actually borrowed from Jesus. In Luke 22, when, when Peter writes something about don't lose your stability, Jesus said that about Peter in Luke 22. Peter was so brash and bold. Lord, we're going to defend you. We're going to stand up for you. And Jesus said, I've been praying for you, Peter, because you're going to lose your stability. He didn't know it. And then Jesus added this to it. But when you do, will you strengthen the brethren? The way Peter grew in grace was that he remembered he needed it. For all of his commitments and for all of his principles and for all of his devotion, he stumbled. And he had to come back to the fact that the Lord has not turned me out to pasture. And that may be why he ends with a doxology. To him be glory both now and the day of eternity. Martin Luther said this, only two days matter. This day, that day. Let's let the Lord use this to challenge us. It's meant to stir us. It is. Peter writes that to stir, to stir the people. We can't ignore that. But there's also a comfort. One great comfort is that you see the word patience used again. Why does God take so long to do what He does? It's mercy. Mercy for us and mercy for our family and mercy for the people we work with and love. I hope He takes a thousand years. Patience. God is simply determined to frustrate us like a family would a child. They pass the city park and the child gets mad because they don't stop. I asked you, I want to go play, but the child has no idea they're going to Disney World. And so the Lord has to do that with us too. Every prayer you complain to God went unanswered, you'll see why. Every effort and encouragement that seem to bear no fruit or get noticed will be vindicated. Every injustice or wrong or loss that you've endured will be righted. The tears will dry. The shoulders will straighten. Every dollar given, every service rendered, every kindness offered will glow. It'll be this magic aha moment. The delight you have in music, the delight you have in art, the delight you have in laughter, perpetuate. They don't end. That's the beauty of it. So our closing prayer this morning is actually taken from this passage. It's the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father. And so that will be our closing prayer this morning as we, we stand to sing that.